sure every speaker says that, but I really mean it. Uh, this is the third time I've had the opportunity to be out here in uh, this area, in Woodward and surrounding. This time I was able to bring five of my six kids, and they are really enjoying uh, this as well. I keep coming in February. I need, I, I need to come another month as well and see some different weather, but uh, it's wonderful to be here with you, and thank you for the opportunity to stand before you. Uh, speaking of kids... You know, we do have a lot of them uh, in our household, and one of the great things about having so many kids is, of course, and even if you only have one child or you just are around other children, some of the funny things they say, of course, um, over over time. And from our own personal family oral history, some of the questions kids ask have been particularly funny, and I'm sure you can think of your own examples as well. For example, one time one of our sons said, Grandma, what's inside a giraffe's hoof? which is a question I'd never considered either. Or one, one of them said to me very sincerely once, Dad, what would happen if there was a really rich guy with five children and a wife and a butler and everyone died but the butler? He was very exercised about this question, you know, great, great philosophical questions like that. Or, Dad, this is a question one of them asked, would God still love an anteater if it's got its head cut off? So those are the, maybe your children ask more intelligent questions. So these are some of the questions my children have asked me over time, and I've tried to answer. Having a Ph.D. doesn't help answer those kind of questions. But, of course, as we get older, our questions get more sophisticated. You know, we've all heard something like, if a tree falls in the woods would be, and no one's there to hear it, does it really make any sound? Or if you send someone styrofoam, how do you pack it? Or if it's true that we're here to help others, what are the others doing? And then, of course, things like, uh, could God make a rock so big that he himself can't list, lift it? These kind of questions you, you hear on occasion. And, of course, most of those are, you know, obviously funny and facetious. They're not sincere questions. But in reality this morning, what I want to talk about is one question that is pervasive in every human heart. It is probably the most core question that in our quiet moments that everyone ends up asking at some point in their lives. It really is a question that stands behind and motivates most human behavior, or a lot of human behavior, in all that we do. And it's the simple but profound question of, what does God want? What does God want of me? What does God expect of me? What do I do to please Him? How can I find life um, by God? I say this motivates human behavior, almost all human behavior, because in the world, most people are religious in some way. And every religion is trying to answer that very question, what does God want of me? How can I get his blessing? For the 1.5 billion, billion Muslims in the world, their answer to that question, what motivates their religion is the answer to that question. And their answer would be total surrender to God, which is one of the meanings of the word Islam, total total surrender to God. And the way that one surrenders to their God, Allah, is to obey these five pillars of Islam, the confession of Allah is a true God, praying at fixed times, etc., taking a, uh, a journey at some point in their lives. That is what motivates Islam. How can I please God? And the answer they give is very clear. These five pillars of Islam and total surrender. For the billion or so Hindus in the world, 
Their answers are going to vary because they have different traditions within Hinduism, but many of them will involve embracing some sort of idea like dharma, some ethics, and also the reality of karma, that what you do will come back to you in some sense. For the four or five hundred million Buddhists in the world, their answer is that our goal is to achieve enlightenment through acting certain ways and certain forms of meditation, etc. For modern-day Judaism today in Israel and other places, also very diverse, their answer would be that we please God by obeying Torah, the Old Testament laws from our perspective, and the rabbinic teaching, right? And even though for the millions of people today who would not necessarily go to church somewhere or be part of religion... Most of the time, if you just stop someone on the, tr- on the street today who's not here in church and say, what can you do to please God? They would have some kind of answer, wouldn't they? And it usually would be something like, well, I try to be a good person and don't do bad things, right? So my point is that from the most jihadist Muslim, from the most zealous Muslim to really even just the average person who's kind of agnostic or doesn't really know what to believe, almost everyone has some idea of this question in their souls. What can I do to please God? But here's the question this morning. What about biblical Christianity? What's the answer to that question when we think about what the Bible teaches? And you can pause and think for a second. How would you answer that if someone came to you and said, maybe your child or your neighbor, and says, you know, what do I need to do to please God. Well, I don't think it's very difficult to know that we need to turn to the New Testament especially, and especially probably the teachings of Jesus, and maybe especially one of the most important places where we learn about Jesus and what he has to say, and that is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what I'm going to be speaking from through the services today, different parts of the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe, although we don't find everything, of course, about Christianity in the Sermon on the Mount, I do think the Sermon on the Mount, right out of the chute, right from the beginning, seeks to answer that question I raised. What does God want of me? So if you have a Bible, I just want to read these first 12 verses for you from Matthew chapter 5. So the first book in the New Testament, the first big teaching part of Matthew in Matthew chapter 5. You're probably familiar with this, many of you. If you're not, you can just listen or follow along. I'll read the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. He says, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And here's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here's the question. What is the point of this, and how does this relate to this question of What does God want of me? Well, I think it speaks directly to the question of what does God want of me because of that word that begins every one of those verses. Do you see it? Blessed. Blessed. This is the word in the Bible that communicates 
This is the people upon whom God's favor rests. Blessing, shalom, peace, blessing. That's our clue in this text, that our text is speaking to us on this huge human question, what does God want? Who are the ones that God blesses? Not just who are the ones that God gives money to, not that sense of blessing, right? But the sense of who, upon whom does God's favor rest? That's what the Bible means by saying who is blessed. And what is the answer? What's the answer according to these verses? I mean, you fill in the blank. What does God want? Who are the blessed ones? If you were to stop and think, how would you answer that? Well, I want to say, is, it, is this a new, is this thing we call the Beatitudes? Is this a, a new list of moral things? So today you need to go home and work harder this afternoon and this week um, when you're you know, on your ranch or in your office, wherever you are, trying to be more of these things. So this is your new law. This is your new you know, nine pillars of Christianity that you have to do. Is that what this is? Is this a new Christian moral conduct or pathway to enlightenment? Absolutely not. No, no, no. What holds together all these Beatitudes is not a list of religious duties this morning, but actually what I like to call the P-O-H, by which I mean a posture of heart. Whom does God bless? With whom is God pleased? He blesses and he wants one simple thing, a certain posture of heart, a type of heart response in us, a way of life that's not moralism, but a way of life that is coming out of having a certain orientation or a posture, a positioning of your heart toward God. Let me show you what I mean. Look at your text again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit simply means to have a humble heart. That's what it is. It's an image for having a humble heart. Matthew, Jesus here, uses the image of poverty, uses the metaphor, the idea of money, because it's such a powerful one. Because when we are poor, that's when we're in the position that we know we're needy. You see, when things are going well, you know, the rest of the country's in a recession, but I hear around here not as much, and that's good. God's blessing you. That's wonderful for many of you, and maybe some of you not. But for when our bank accounts are fat, we may give money and we may, you know, praise God, but there's not the kind of prayers of crying out in desperate need for God is when we are at the bottom financially, right? I mean, that's just real life. It's, it's inevitable. Now, the point is to use poverty and what its effect is to talk about our hearts is a very important and powerful teaching. Because this is saying God cares about a kind of heart that is in that desperate crying out poverty situation. It's a posture of heart. Look at the next one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. This is a heart issue as well. When we are grieved by some trial or some, some suffering or the death of those whom we love, we are mourning. There's, a, there's a, in a sense, again, a poorness, a poverty of spirit that is there. But there's even something deeper going on here because really Jesus' teachings here relate to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, which talks about God comforting those who mourn, right, from Isaiah chapter 40. And what that means is those who are longing for God's kingdom to come. That's especially what Jesus is saying here where he says, blessed are those who mourn, those who are seeing the world around them and we are brokenhearted by it. But my main point is here again, what is blessed? Those who have a certain posture of heart, those who are longing in their hearts to have God's kingdom come. Look at the next one. Blessed are the meek or the humble. 
or the gentle, more of the same. This is a certain posture of heart, a a way of relating to God and to others. It is the way that Jesus himself modeled so amazingly. In fact, everything in the Sermon on the Mount and, and all the Beatitudes, if you read the rest of Matthew, you'll see that Matthew gives us at least one example of Jesus being the greatest example of that very thing. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, humble, and gentle. And we can think of later in Matthew, time we're going to be talking about here, I'm sure, as Easter's coming up, and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where Jesus comes in with great humility. He is the one who models, ultimately, this meekness and this humility. It's a posture of heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next one, it is again a powerful image, not just those who do righteousness, but those who have a heart that is oriented towards God's way and his coming kingdom. And look at the next one. Blessed are the merciful. This is again, not just an action, but it is a kind of heart. It's not just doing the right thing. It is having a heart that forgives others and is willing to see our own brokenness and to give mercy, to extend mercy to others. That's a heart position. That's a posture of heart. What does that look like? Well, in Matthew's day, in Jesus's day, one example from the earlier chapters of Matthew is the man Joseph. He is an example of a man who had a merciful heart. He's engaged. This beautiful young girl turns out she's pregnant. The law says he has the right to have her stoned. Right? And he's hurt probably too. He's embarrassed. He's hurt. He's frustrated. Socially, it's a big mess. Stoner. It's the law. It's right. She did wrong. She gets what she deserves. But he's not that kind of man. He instead decides to put her aside, maybe even with money, we don't know, but to put her aside quietly so she would not be shamed. That is the kind of heart that Jesus commends. Those who are merciful, even when it's not deserved, which is exactly when we need mercy. Right? What does it look like today for you and me? Having a merciful heart towards that coworker? who's maybe been aloof to you and has hurt your feelings or has spurned you or even more has spoken ill of you and caused you trouble in your workplace, made fun of you publicly, been promoted over you, right? Having a heart, Jesus says, that is actually giving of mercy, not holding a grudge. It looks like forgiving from the heart those and blessing those who misrepresent you And do injustice to you, seeking not your own vengeance, but having a heart that is full of mercy. Blessed are those, Jesus says, whose hearts are being given towards merciful. There is a greater virtue than justice, according to Jesus. And it is the virtue of mercy. And then look at the next one there. Kind of brings us all together. Blessed are the pure in heart. In light of what we've said, it not, should not be surprising. These are all about having a certain posture or attitude of heart. But we can misunderstand this one as well. This does not mean you are perfect. I think especially maybe for men, right? But for all of us, when we see something like pure of heart, we immediately think of all the ways we have not been pure with our eyes, for example, right? 
But this is not what purity of heart means. That's a misunderstanding. Purity, I mean, that is a good thing. I'm not recommending looking, using your eyes badly. What I mean is that misses the main idea. Purity of heart means wholeness and integrity of heart. It doesn't mean perfection. It does not mean you never do anything wrong. Purity of heart means that your internal, your heart, your reality on the inside is actually oriented toward God. It's not perfect, right? We all fail in many ways and we all sin. But a matter of what Jesus is commending is having a posture of an attitude of heart like King David. He was far from perfect, killed a man, committed an adulterous affair, right? All kinds of problems. Yet he is a man after God's own heart. Our tendency is to look at the outward and say, that's purity or not. Purity is not a matter of outwardness. It's a matter of an orientation toward God that results in outward transformation. Absolutely. But we can't get the cart before the horse on that matter. So blessed are the pure in heart. And also blessed are the peacemakers, which is related to mercy. It is this heart attitude that is not seeking to cause trouble, but is actually giving and making peace with others. So what I'm suggesting to you is simply with it. When we read the Beatitudes, instead of making them into a new list of moral things to work on this week, we need to see that God is calling us and inviting us to having a certain orientation towards him and that he sees and cares about the inside, our hearts. So are these the new entrance requirements for Christianity? Is that the point? So if you do this thing, then you're blessed. See, that's the logic of how we usually read these. Jesus is saying, okay, all right, you might say to me, all right, Jonathan, that's fine. He cares about the heart. So I've got to do these things and then I'll get the blessing. That's not the logic of these verses. It is a pronouncement of blessing and then an add-on blessing on top of that. Do you see the logic of these verses? Look at them. They're not saying, if you do this thing, then God will do this for you. That is religion. That is Islam. That is Hinduism. That is Judaism. That is unfortunately much of Christianity that is not biblical. If you do this, God will do this for you. That's not the logic of the Beatitudes. They are saying this is the person upon whom God's favor rests. And then you also get this other blessing for there is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted, etc. It's like saying to your wife, I've purchased a great 10-day Caribbean cruise for us. This is the blessing. She didn't do anything. I mean, she didn't do something to deserve it. What I mean is, it's just a blessing that's given. And then I also brought you the sparkly dress, right? That's how the Beatitudes work. They are a pronouncement of blessing. They are a gift of God to us. And then there's an additional blessing. This is not an if-then. If you do this, then you'll get this. That is not the gospel. Do you see? So, this is an unpacking of what God cares about. Yes, we can pursue these ways of being, being merciful and kind, but we cannot get the cart before the horse and see, think of that if we do this, God will do this. Instead, this is a pronouncement of a way of being, a relating to God that is the blessed life. A posture of heart. Now, we could just stop there, but did you notice I didn't deal with verses 10 to 12? And that's because there actually is a logic here that we need to understand. That verses 10 to 12 are also blessings, 
those who are blessed, who are persecuted. And in fact, verses 11 and 12 take that beatitude in verse 10 and make it even more significant by rehashing it and unpacking it. Do you see that? You have a double emphasis at the end here on persecution. What in the world is the relationship of those verses to verses 10 to 12? I think it's simply this, that when in fact we do begin to orient our lives towards having a heart that is oriented toward God and begin to let that work its way out and being merciful and kind and humble and gentle, poor in spirit, the result is certainly a sense of God's blessing on the inside and even on the outside largely, but it also results in persecution. It actually results in the opposite often happening to us because we are citizens of two worlds. If we begin to orient our lives towards God's coming kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and yet we're living, and if we live that way on this king, in these kingdoms of the earth, the result is not, yay, we are so proud of you. It's instead often persecution and opposition. Right? And notice this beautiful wisdom of God. That when that happens, when we receive actually sufferings and persecution because we're trying to reorient our lives toward God, not toward the world. What that does in God's beauty and his wisdom is that actually forces us back to the very place of blessing, the place of poverty of spirit and humility of heart. Do you see the beauty of that? We could never have made this thing up. This is God's wisdom, the one who created you in your mother's womb and brought you to this place today has made your life and oriented it so that the sufferings and the persecutions, whether it's cancers or outside opposition, are bringing you to the place of greater blessing from God, the place of poverty of spirit, the place of humility, because that is the kind of heart that God loves and meets with and says, Shalom, and says, Peace to you. This is why our sufferings are, can actually even be rejoiced in. That marriage that you're stuck in and you feel like, I, am, I have no way out. This is, I can't see any way out of this. That is the place where God is working in you the, the, the heart, the posture of heart that is his place of blessing. So why is this the gospel this morning? Why are the Beatitudes good news for you in Woodward, Oklahoma this morning? They're good news because anybody can do this because it's not doing anything at all. The reason the gospel is truly good news to you and me this morning is because it's not a list of things to do. It's not just for the successful businessman in our community or the successful rancher or the particularly godly man who's really good. This is true for everyone because it is not doing anything. This requires no skills, no theological education. You don't need to have a dumb DR period in front of your name. In fact, that can be a hindrance to it. What this, the reason this is good news is because this is an invitation from God to say, all I need is to be broken before the Lord and say what he sees and cares about is a posture of heart. Do you see that that's good news? Because we can all do that right now. We can say, God, I have made a mess of things. 
I, my heart is not merciful. Would you work in me and change me? And then as a result of you changing me, I get even a greater blessing. That is gospel. So I'm not going to tell you this week to go out and do more stuff and be more Christian. Those are the outflow of getting your heart right with God. And that is an invitation that is open to all. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. Just later on in this book, not too much farther, in chapter 11, take my yoke upon you. Not because it's a huge list of things you have to do now to be a Christian. It's actually easy and light, he says. Because it's a matter of having a broken posture toward God that any one of us can do starting today. That's gospel. That's good news. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we could not make up such a beautiful message. You know our hearts. You know our brokenness. You know our pride. You know our rebellion, our resistance. You know our moments when nobody else sees, when we just realize we are a failure. And I have blown it again. Thank you, God, that your gospel is not a call to work harder, but is an invitation to this beauty that we've just spoken of, to just turn our hearts in repentance to you. And then as a result of that, to receive your peace and your blessings. We give you glory for the truth of this gospel that meets our every need. And we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.